Hello, my name is Shiva Grings and I'm an artist, a street theatre artist to be precise. The year 2020 got off to a good start for me. To be honest, 2019 had been pretty good too. I had a new production in the works, I was organising a street theatre festival and I was looking forward to playing to thousands of people as a clown all over Europe in the summer. But then, Covid came along. Now, me and my peers are sitting at home, twiddling our thumbs and wondering what's going to happen. I had to think of something to do with my time. And I did. Welcome to the Quarantine Sessions, where we will explore the life of one artist on hold in every episode. Today I'm with Len Schertz, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. He's a mask maker, a director, an actor. He's from the United States. He lives in Germany nowadays. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you. One of the things that I really want to talk about in this podcast is how one came to do theater. Like okay. you don't so much do street theater mm-hmm. at the moment, but you also dabbled in the world of street theater. How yes. did you get into the entire scene? My parents were involved in amateur children's theater in the small town that I grew up in. And so from the age of three on, I was experiencing theater. I was backstage watching my dad getting makeup as the Cowardly Lion, and then I was watching my mother uh, play the ugly stepsister and, and that sort of thing. And then when I was about 13, I started getting involved in this amateur theater stuff. What often happens with the 14 or 15, I think a pretty girl asked if I would take up a role in uh, the Diary of Anne Frank in the high school drama department. And I did it, and I realized that theater is a place where there's a lot of social interaction involved, whereas I was more of a bookworm and a nerd, you'd say, these days. And theater got me out of that nerdy situation and interaction with people. After that uh, production, I pretty much was involved in theater all the time. I think there was, when I was 22, I think there was like, Three months where I said I'm not going to do theater, but that really quickly changed. What did you do instead? Flied kites, uh, Saturday night barbecues, uh, just had fun. You didn't try any your hand in some other jobs? Like I tried my hand at working in a restaurant and oh, I, I yeah. pretty soon decided no. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in California and California, of course, uh, that's always the thing you, that somebody says, what are you? And you say, I'm an actor. And they say, oh, that's wonderful. What do you do for a living? And that is, uh, I worked and lived in the Bay Area for about five, six years after I studied theater in college. And I was always doing something. I was working in a restaurant. I was doing uh, typesetting. I was uh, working as a word processor. So in the evenings, I would go into the rehearsal studio and work out. And there was only one little phase, and that there we come to street theater, there was only one little phase where I actually made money doing street performance, and that was as I was, I was uh, doing a mask performance on the campus of UC Berkeley, and I would get maybe about $13 or something like that, and I would go directly to the farmer's market and buy vegetables, and that's what I was living off of at that point. And uh, it was just like a, a period of where I didn't have any other income, and uh, except for a loan that my grandfather gave me or something like that. And so that was actually my first 
time on the street. And how, how was it for an actor who's got his text to his scripts and nobody yeah. wanders on stage and then to suddenly be on the street? Yeah, well, that was the problem I noticed. I, I tried my hand at the typical pantomime. I had studied pantomime in college, and uh, through pantomime, I got involved in mask work and mask making. And it began as a sideline of my traditional acting work. And what I really loved about that was creating your own shows. As the time went on, I realized I wanted to do shows that I was saying a message that I really wanted to. And, and, and only a few plays would do that. And so I started writing my own plays. And when I got onto the street, I think the biggest difference for me, street performance and stage performance, is that the audience, uh, when they come into a theater, they've already made the contract with you. We are going to watch. We are going to be audience members and you are going to be the performer. And when you work on the street, this contract doesn't automatically exist. And I realized I had problems with, I was yeah, inhibited uh, trying to get people to watch me who hadn't already decided on this contract. And I think that's the major difference between uh, a true street performer and a stage performer is that a street performer is really curious about how do I get people to watch without having them made the decision beforehand. And when I do street performance, it's usually either a theater, sort of like a theater situation where there are actually seats and there's a little story involved or I'm doing walking acts and the walking acts are pretty much based on the fact that that people can walk by you uh, and not just you walk by them but they walk by you and so if an encounter happens it's a mutual mutual decision. Here in Central Europe we have the plus that there's a lot of festivals where yes. which are actually street, but they're not really street. So there is right. half a contract already with the right. audience. Of course, there's no commitment on their part. If they find you really boring, they'll wander off anyway. Yeah. So it's only half a contract in comparison yeah. to actually standing up in a theater and going, yeah. this is a load of bollocks. It's, yeah. it's a yeah. quite a lot harder there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely harder. And, and I don't have so much that much of a problem of people walking away as that I really do feel inhibited about somebody's having a conversation with a friend or is involved in their life and then somebody, suddenly somebody's saying, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm interesting. And then they have to stop whatever it is they're, the part of their life they're doing. And that's the inhibition I have is this interruption, mm. which is actually, a, it's, it's something that I find uh, needs to be done actually but it's not something that i'm very good at it's interesting because i think especially nowadays people are used to not committing mm -hmm. mobile phones have helped us very much to not commit yeah maybe mm -hmm. i'll meet you in an hour but let me call you again beforehand mm -hmm. and maybe the street offers some of that too in in, in the way that it's non-committal if mm -hmm. you don't like it you can go if you don't have time you can leave mm -hmm. and i think the job of a street artist to be really cruel is a little bit like a donald trump to keep slapping people <laughs> mm -hmm. saying, you don't know what I'm going to do. You don't know what I'm going to do. You mm -hmm. don't know what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. people stay out of curiosity. And so I feel that in street festivals, you can be very creative nowadays. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely aspects of that mm -hmm. in the whole thing where you're limited in how creative you can be. Because sometimes there are drops. There's less interesting parts in a show that helps mm -hmm. to create the interesting parts later on. And that's right. harder on the street. 
Right. And that's one of the things that also has led me to, well, just not pursue that possibility with mask work or with pantomime or with uh, street performance, because I'm usually interested in those non-interesting parts that uh, an interesting part is based on. That's part of the dramaturgy of, of the things that I do, and uh, it just doesn't really work on in the street. Also, um, you do a lot of mask work, and yes. mask, I find, is extremely difficult on the street because mm -hmm. it's uh, very frontal often. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be, but it can be. Mm -hmm. I think it limits the ability. People need to be much more focused mm -hmm. and take much more time out to mm -hmm. really enjoy a good mask performance than they do the yelling guy with the fire clubs. It's interesting because we've you worked we work with commedia style half masks and full masks. And our full masks are pretty much they wrap around the head. So they're very three-dimensional. I, I started making my masks with the three-dimensionality in mind quite early. So they work in that sense. What's interesting about working with a half mask on in a street situation where like, you know, you're walking your fish uh, as a half mass character and, and, and you talk and you say, oh, yeah, it's the fish, my neighbor's fish. I'm, I'm you know, I'm just, just walking and, uh, you know, that sort of thing is a walking act. And the people will look at you and they see the chin and they see the eyes and they see the mouth. There's at least a half a minute where they're still seeing Len Schertz, the performer, behind Egon Schroeder, the mask character. At the, in this phase, it just doesn't work at all because uh, the, the half mask works really with that moment of suspension of, of disbelief where you start experiencing Egon Schroeder, the fictional character, and you start really having fun because you know all this all the time that it's a fictional character. Uh, my colleague Francisca uh, has another half mask character that she gets really quickly into a conversation with absolute strangers. And the interesting thing about it is, is if they get past that suspension of disbelief moment, they start to tell you all their, their secrets of their lives. And it is Francisco's, but uh, often uh, I've had it also happen to me. It's, it's sort of like, uh, you realize that I'm a real person behind this fictional character, don't you? With full masks, it's more like Some people really get into it immediately. They see the poetical enhancement of everyday life and they are immediately enthralled. And then you have other people who very pointedly ignore you. And they're talking on their cell phone or they're walking by and you're, you're a human-sized raven or a, a gargoyle or whatever. And they just walk right by you and as if you are a fire hydrant. They just will not watch you. And of course, when we're engaged by a festival, well, that's, that's okay. They just walk by, okay, well, they don't want to be part of the theater. That's fine. Uh, well, somebody else will be watching from maybe 20 yards away and enjoying uh, the situation. It's interesting. I've just now occurred to me, perhaps that's one of the big differences between classical theater and mm -hmm. street theater, is that much of what happens on stage, you invite a moment of suspension of disbelief, as yes. you said. And a lot of what happens on the street, we're not inviting people into a new world. We're saying, look at me, I'm living a new world and I can do this. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I'm fascinated by this suspension of disbelief. That's why masks work. 
the, one of the worst comments I have after a performance is, oh, the masks, they came to life. I, they're just so, I, I say it's one of the worst comments because I want them to be watching my story. They're, they're fascinated by the, that the masks come to life. So I know that for the last 40 years. At the same time, I have to accept that's something that's very important for uh, an everyday person to realize is that they can manipulate reality with their own mind. I find that that's an important part of our profession in general. Like people come to me and say, oh, that was super funny. That was super spontaneous. Mm -hmm. and maybe for me, it wasn't so much in that moment because maybe I've done it before. Yes. But in that case, it's not about me, the performer. It's about yes. what they're experiencing. And I've learned not to go like, oh, no, that was crap. Or no, mm -hmm. I wasn't being creative. It's because in the end, it's what arrived at their, yes. at their doorstep, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's part of the humility that we, we should continually practice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, how did you end up in, in Europe of all places? Um, and here in Freiburg of all places? It began with fascination and with uh, a romance, the, both of them combining to incite me to get a job. And then, I, and then the job kept me here eight years until everything was so established. It was, I, I came over with a, as assistant to a production that played in fe uh, the International Festival in Munich and the International Festival here in Freiburg. So that was already in 82 I had experienced Freiburg. And uh, coming from San Francisco where an international theater festival meant in one small theater there would be an international performance once a week for about maybe a month and a half. That means maybe six performances and then you'd have maybe a hundred people in the audience. And that was an international theater festival. And then you come to Munich and you've got an international theater festival and there's two tents that are only for gastro gastronomy and there's five tents that are performing. Then you've also got the residence theater and then you've got a theater in a factory and you've got all of these other things. And then you think, wow, that's an international theater festival. You've got people from Japan and people from everywhere. And then you drive two hours and there's another festival. And then you go another two hours and there's a jazz festival. And the, the entire summer, I mean, that was the 80s. That was the heyday of festivals. But it's still pretty much that way. It was just uh, coming from uh, the East Bay or the San Francisco where you don't make a living performing. World-famous plays have been premiered in San Francisco by performers who aren't even making the, the money to commute from their home to the theater. So it was like, wow, this is what culture is, uh, as opposed to the crazy commercially centered world of, of American society. So I was fascinated by it and I wanted to get to get to know it and then I got the job and then like I said then I had my connections and then I had my whatever and then there here I was. Mm -hmm. And now here you have like a nice studio a nice mm -hmm. workshop mm -hmm. you have like lots of there's lots of masks behind us. Yes. You work a lot with masks. Do you think there's um, been a change to our relationship to masks? Nowadays I feel when I when I say oh, yeah, I'm working with masks people are thinking of face masks. Yes uh, it's I, th I, th I think it's fun because uh, the one thing I notice is that Francisca and I, we've, we put on a mask. One of the things that always happens to people who've put on a mask for the first time is the feeling that they can't breathe. And 
And this is a psychological effect. We've had that for the last 20 years or more. And so that's like, okay, we put on a face mask. It's a little bit more difficult to breathe, but not really. And we notice how people are completely confronted by this situation. We can't, uh, this psychological can't breathe moment. And uh, we're actually, we find it rather funny. It's also very interesting that uh, we just taught a workshop with everybody wearing masks for two weeks. Face masks, not... Face masks, face masks, masks, not theater masks. And that's covering up the lower part of the face, whereas a mask usually covers either the entire face or the upper part of the face. And it was interesting how difficult it was. It is possible, but difficult, to communicate without the face. There's a reason why very few masks cover the lower part of the face and not the upper. Maybe we'll all become amazingly good pantomimes after this. Maybe there'll be a whole generation of people who can ask (laughs) for money back and express their feelings without uh, actually showing it in their face. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I've been thinking about during this whole situation is the, uh, the deaf community. They have a major problem now because the sign language is combined. They, they use a combination of lip movements and uh, gestures to communicate. And so it's a major problem for them. But for us hearing people, I think we lost our gestural ability a long, long, long time ago. And I think it would be really good for us to get back into that. And, and I notice how I begin using a lot of very, very basic sign language gestures when I'm speaking. It would be very interesting to see, like to do a study between the north and the south, because the further north you go, Mm -hmm. the more the hands are in the pockets. And and in Italy, they always gesticulate anyways. Yes. So I wonder what that's like for them, if it's easier for them to communicate with each other still. That would be an interesting question, yeah. Yeah, because I don't think, I think masks are with us to stay, actually. I don't really think that masks are going to go away completely. I don't, I think that it's going to be a long time before this, uh, we've, we've got this epidemic and um, there'll be another epidemic, almost guaranteed with the climate change the way it is, um, where this is sometimes, I think this is a practice session. And so we're probably going to be integrating masks, just as Japanese have integrated masks into their daily lives. Uh, It just won't be as prevalent. We are going to have to learn how to be able to communicate with these coverings. Do you think there's other things that will change now? Will there be a difference in how we perform or how the audience sees us? I would say there's, there's a hope that I have and there's a fear that I have, or maybe not a fear. I think that one of the major problems at the moment with the, the audience-performer relationship, we've, we've performed on stage in the, in the non-lockdown where there, there were, uh, you have a distance between, distanced audience members. And we've also performed on, in the street. And the thing that I notice is that the synergy between the audience members, not between us, we have, we have a very good communication with uh, the audience members. That's not, a, that's not the problem. The problem is that the audience members can't connect. They, they, they're, one person who's a performer said to me she was watching something in Kampnagel 
and she felt like she was the only person in the room. And she wasn't. It, there were people one and a half meters away from her. That is one of the things that brings theater away from television. Yes. It's the community. Yes. Uh, there's uh, the director of the Guthrie Theater in the United States made a really big plaidoyer for live theater because he was talking about how the studies have shown that the audience begin, their heartbeat begins to synchronize with each other and that also that they have found that this audience, this group feeling or this group identity improves altruism, improves the ability to empathize with others and improves the ability to work socially. We, we simply cannot reduce ourselves to this digital world. We have to find a way to be able to renew the social contract through, for example, theater, through performance, through concerts. And I think if we have this epidemic for much longer, we're really going to have to change that. We're going to have to find a way that an audience can sit close to each other and have that uh, synchronizing, have that um, bonding that happens between audience members. Um, because I think our society really needs that. Otherwise, we're going to go off in a direction that I don't think we really want to experience. Yeah, and what you're talking about is, I think every performer, especially me as a clown, I, I can feel that like there's a huge difference between performing for one person, performing for 200. Yes. There's a community that yes. starts to go up there and you yeah. realize it's okay to laugh, it's okay to be shocked. Yes. Because we're together. Yes. And that's could be difficult with Netflix shows. Yes, that's it. it it's uh, this laughing with the rest of the audience. Um, that's what's happened. We performed uh, with this distant situation. And you could tell individuals were laughing by themselves. They were sort of chuckling. You could hear the chuckling. Uh, that in a normal situation with them together, there were enough people there that, you know, you need about, let's say, I think it's my experience is it's after 30 people. And so, so once you've got more than 30 people together, the ball starts to roll. And uh, that wasn't happening. It just wasn't happening. It was they. Were, everybody was chuckling by themselves, but not laughing as a group. We can get used to that. We can continue to perform. It's it's frustrating, but it's not horrible. But it's the the audience is really missing out on something there. And do you think there's anything positive that can come out of this? Well, one of the things that I keep on hoping for, it hasn't happened yet, is is like that are, that new venues occur where I also think that, that single people experiencing a poetic moment in life, like that's one of the things that I keep on thinking, walking act. I remember one time uh, there was a festival in, in Ulm and I was walking through the street and suddenly there was this alien creature, a stilt walker with strange cries walking down the night-filled street of uh, the Herrenstrasse in Ulm and he was going towards uh, the central plaza where there would be a, a battle between alien creatures. Uh, and I was all by myself experiencing this world and it was fascinating and I think I would really love to be able to give other people that with a walking act that is not based on a crowd. I think that would be one of the pluses it, that, that performances for one or two or three people would be possible. I think that would be a plus. I think another plus is the ability to perform for 
an international audience. They are creating ways for, like, it's an interesting thing because friends of ours did a, a concert, a live concert, streaming concert, and they got feedback from audience members that were saying they really noticed the difference between a canned performance and this live situation, even though they weren't in the same room. And, and some of these people were, you know, in another country or something like that. So that will certainly be an expansion of the artistic possibilities. It, it just can't be a reduction to that. So last question. Yes. When it's dark and gray and you're not allowed to perform, what do you do to keep yourself going? <laughs> um, well, I've been writing. I'm, I'm writing my second novel now. Um, I haven't got over the point of asking a publisher to, to look at my book, but I, I guess that's one of the things that, like I said, I'm, I'm basically an introverted artist, and so the um, individual artistic side of me, like writing or painting or drawing or mask making, is actually very happy to have the chance to just be by itself and create. So I'm not having that much of a problem with that. Okay, Len, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And that's it from this week. Thanks for being with us. Come and join us again. Sign up to the podcast. Tell your friends. And if you really liked it, why not go overboard and buy the book? This is what we do for a living. See you next time. <laughs>